Hey everyone, I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist and gives the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. And guys, we're really happy to be back with you. As you know, we're former journalists turned coffee farmers. And man, the field has been keeping us busy. We've been wrapping up this season's harvest. And we've also been tinkering with the format of this podcast because of your feedback. Now, if you've been hanging out with us, you know that we give you a lot of historical context with the news. But understand, because I don't think Ralph or I have been really explicitly clear, we don't do this just as an exercise. We catch you up to speed so you can then take action on the country and the world that you want to see. So expect to hear an occasional segment with suggested actions for you. And you've also told us that you want more examples of how to use our four tips for reading the news. You guys remember episode one? You want to review them, Ralph? Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, so the four rules were, number one, don't look for absolute truth in the news because it's just the first draft of history. Number two, consider all sources critically. Number three, follow the money. And number four, let go of binary thinking. Yep. Now, we're going to break these down more later in this episode and in future ones so you can start to identify media narratives on your own and figure out who's paying to push them and then, in turn, make better decisions about the information you're consuming, right? Yep. So let's get started with our overall theme for today. And that is, what the heck is radical anyway? (laughs) So since the election, we've heard a call for unity. I mean, after all, Biden talked about finding unity eight times in his inauguration speech. And in the beginning weeks of his presidency, the media kept returning to that point. They pointed out repeatedly that Biden was not trying to meet the Republicans halfway. And this is why. We're now a month into Biden's presidency, and Senate Democrats are preparing to use budget reconciliation to push through the president's COVID relief package. In addition, Biden has issued 31 executive orders so far, and that's more than any other presidents have issued at this point in their presidencies. I mean, according to Tamara Keith at NPR, who, by the way, is an old classmate of ours from UC Berkeley, the previous record setter was FDR, who issued 30 executive orders in his first month. And so you have this narrative being pushed by Republicans and amplified in the media that Biden and the Democrats are too, quote unquote, radical because, you know, the Democrats are acting independently of them and pushing policies that they don't favor. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples from headlines. The Wall Street Journal, which is a center-right newspaper, uh, they've got a headline uh, that basically says, Biden agenda faces GOP seeking to unify in opposition after Trump impeachment. Democrats are moving on to cabinet nominees and pandemic relief, which one Republican calls the most radical agenda. There's also an opinion piece in the New York Post, a daily tabloid that leans conservative. It says, Biden is the most radical left-wing president in U.S. history, period. Period, huh? <laughs> Now, here's the thing. I know some of you guys are recognizing this as, hey, this is, you know, more conservative media. These are Republican talking points. But, you know, when talking points are repeated over and over again, more and more people believe them over time. This is how you shift public opinion, right? And honestly, guys, this is where the news media fails us because it's so focused on the current moment. It gives us too narrow, 
too myopic a view. And to determine what is truly radical or not, we've got to look at the long arm of history. So let's go ahead and take that perspective. When I tell people that Ralph and I met in grad school, dated for about six years, and got married, do you guys consider that a radical act? I mean, on the surface, this seems like a pretty mundane story, right? But the fact that we met, the fact that we went to grad school together, and the fact that we got married, each of those things was radical at certain points in this country's history. You want to explain, Ralph? Sure. I mean, think about American history from this perspective. I mean, at one point, it was seen as radical to suggest that my forefathers should even be citizens in this country, let alone seen as equal human beings. The abolitionists back in the 19th century had to push for over 40 years to change the hearts and minds of the public. Then you had Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the passage of the 13th Amendment, and, oh, by the way, a, the Civil War. Hey, back up a minute, Ralph. you got to tell us what the 13th Amendment is for some of our listeners. The 13th Amendment is the amendment that abolished slavery in the United States. But even beyond that, Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens had to work in Congress during the Reconstruction Era to pass the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, equal protection under the law and the right to vote for all U.S. citizens. And... Those amendments came from what they called back then the radical Republican congressional majorities in that era. You move to the 1930s and the New Deal. You know, FDR's New Deal was, of course, seen as radical, and he embraced that. Roosevelt himself wrote, before he became president, he wrote this. He said it was time for the country to become fairly radical for a generation. And what were those radical changes? Social Security the FDIC, the WPA, which is the Works Progress Administration, a lot of other changes that bolstered the New Deal. You needed a liberal Supreme Court, specifically the Warren Court in 1954, to get Brown versus Board of Education seen as the way to overturn the Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1896. 1967, Loving versus Virginia. For a long time in this country, there were several states where our marriage would not be seen as legal. Loving versus Virginia made it legal everywhere. Yeah, by the way, guys, that also actually includes the state of Maryland where Ralph's parents live and where Ralph grew up. So without that Supreme Court decision, if they still had the old rules, Ralph and I would not be able to travel together and stay in his parents' house together. Yeah. This is, this is legitimately what, what happened to the Lovings. Yeah, it's, that's what, exactly what Virginia happened to the Lovings. <laughs> so, yeah. For some of these things to happen, you needed supermajorities in Congress. You needed presidents and executive and legislative, actually, um, branches with political will to do something. And you needed pressure from the public and the grassroots level. What do you get when you have all of these things together? You get desegregated education. You get the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which allowed my wife, Joan, to be born in this country and change the way that we see immigration in this country. You can take it to another direction as well. Think back to 1964. The Republican candidate for president was Barry Goldwater. He ran on a platform of conservatism, which was seen at that time as extreme. Then that movement grew, and in 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes the president based off of that platform. Nowadays, people talk about this being a center-right country all the time. 
And the election platform that you might have seen from an FDR, a John Kennedy, an LBJ, would be seen as radical and probably even socialist by the way that things are defined today. And these were mainstream democratic platform positions for most of the 20th century. So now Biden and the Senate are pushing for this COVID relief bill, and the GOP is arguing that by using the reconciliation power to avoid a filibuster in the Senate, that this COVID bill is, of course, radical and extreme, particularly in its spending. But a smaller bill doesn't seem to fit what the nation needs, so moves are being made to keep the bill where it is at its current size. But trying to reframe it, in a sense, to the public to show bipartisanship a different way. What they're trying to do now is reflect the broad support the bill has with the public without using the Senate as the way to determine bipartisanship. That's why uh, the Biden administration brought in political leaders from a local and state level, mayors, governors, county executives, Republican and Democrat. They just had a conference of mayors at the White House to ask for relief in the bill. And I know we talked about that briefly, that one of the people there was someone from Fresno we know fairly well. Oh, yeah. That's, a uh, um, well, the former police chief, Jerry Dyer, who is now the mayor of Fresno. And the reason Ralph and I know uh, – uh, of his name, obviously, is because we lived in Fresno for a decade before and practiced journalism there before moving to Hawaii to become coffee farmers. Yeah, and Jared Dyer is, is a Republican, but he quite plainly said these localities need this money, and it shows that there is bipartisan support. So it's just a different way of reframing it. So that's something to think about as we increasingly mold the politics of the 21st century. It makes you wonder if it's the resistance to change that ends up looking radical or regressive in the long term. Right. And, you know, honestly, there's nothing that we've seen so far from Biden's policies that are as radical as the Emancipation Proclamation or the Civil Rights Act. Let's look at health care, for example. Progressive presidents such as Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, Truman, JFK, LBJ, as well as a conservative president, Nixon. Mm -hmm. All of these guys were in favor of Medicare for all. That was standard platform, right? Yes. And now... Biden won't even talk about that. It seems like he's only looking to strengthen Obamacare, which was a proposal from the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Right, yeah, that, that's pretty true. I mean, when in the, in the Democratic primary, he talked a lot about a public option to add on to Obamacare. But since the primary, he's talked about it very little, and there doesn't seem to be much of a push to even add that right now. It is mostly about bolstering Obamacare. Yeah, so that alone should tell you guys that Biden is not the quote-unquote radical that the conservative media is making him out to be. So, in summary, I think you guys can see why we don't consider this time anywhere near radical, no matter what the news narrative is. The Supreme Court is firmly in the conservative camp. The Senate is evenly divided, and two Democratic senators, Kirsten Sinema out of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, are opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. We're not on the heels of the New Deal or the Great Society. Instead, we're on the heels of the Reagan Revolution and the Trump era, which pushed this country to the right. So given all these factors, we're more likely to have partisan gridlock instead of transformational change. All right, guys. So we are at the point in our program where we take specific examples from the news and break them down with you according to our four tips for reading the news. So, Ralph, as a reminder, what are those again? Okay, number one, 
Do not look for absolute truth in news because it's just the first draft of history. Number two, consider all your sources critically. Number three, follow the money. And number four, let go of binary thinking. And as usual, we had some great topics to analyze during the past few weeks. None is bigger than the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package we've been talking about in the show. And the messaging around this has been very interesting. Yeah, that, that's for sure. You know, one thing that was easily noticeable was the criticism of the size of this bill. The most prominent media critique came from Larry Summers, who was the former Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, and he also worked in the Obama administration as an economic advisor. Now, he came out in the Washington Post against the size of this bill. When Summers was in Obama's economic advisory team with Tim Geithner and, and others at that time, he was seen as a key influencer for the 2009 stimulus bill, otherwise known as the American Recovery Act, which ended up being too small to help the economy in the way that, in retrospect, people think it should have. So Summers also thinks this bill is too big. Now, he got some real pushback on this from members of the Senate, from the House, from media, Bernie Sanders, others like that. So what does Mr. Summers do? Well, of course, he publishes another op-ed. Who gets space to do two op-eds and two major papers? Because his second op-ed was in the Wall Street Journal. He found some space in that one to get an opinion put out. And in the Wall Street Journal, he said that he agreed with former Republican Senator Phil Graham and that's one reason we should see this as a problem, because that makes it a bipartisan agreement that the bill is too big. So let's think about this in terms of our rules, starting with rule number four, let go of binary thinking. So Summers, in this article, is trying to get you to think about his opposition with binary thinking, because Graham's a Republican, Summers is a Democrat, right? So these are supposedly polar opposites who agree which means it's totally across the spectrum agreement that the relief package is too big. But, you know, maybe not, because when you look at the backgrounds of these two men, they have a lot more in common than you would think. Yeah, you know, it's actually more instructive to look at our second rule when we dig a bit deeper. And rule number two, of course, is consider the sources critically. So let's start with Larry Summers. Larry Summers is an emissary of the financial sector. He worked for the World Bank in the 1990s, he is a protege of former Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, and he himself succeeded Rubin as Treasury Secretary for Clinton at the end of Clinton's second term as president. He was actually a key advisor in the 1999 repeal of the New Deal-era Glass-Steagall bill. Glass-Steagall is the bill that separated commercial banks from investment banks. So this 1999 repeal bill was kind of one of the last markers that truly ended the New Deal provisions to separate banking interests. Now, the act that was the final repeal of the New Deal provisions was called the Graham-Leach-Billy Act. And yes, that first word in there is Graham, as in Phil Graham. So it seems, despite the supposed ideological divide that they place on their political parties— Graham and Summers are very much connected in terms of their financial outlook and diagnosis. Not so much of a divide there now, apparently. And by the way, as a coda to this part, Graham was a Democrat until 1983 when he switched parties early in the Reagan era. Back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the old school Southern Democrats changed their party affiliation 
and went over to the Republican Party. So at one time, Summers and Graham had the same party affiliation, which makes me think they probably had other things in common. And this brings to mind rule number three, follow the money. So if you want to follow the money with former Senator Graham, it leads to, unsurprisingly, the world of finance. After leaving the Senate in 2002, Graham went to work for UBS Investments, which is an international investment bank based in Switzerland. He retired from UBS in 2012, but he's still a senior visiting scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, a longtime conservative think tank founded in the 1930s and that started in opposition to the New Deal. So we're talking about fiscal conservatives here, no matter what their party affiliation. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah, it, not, not so separate as they'd like you to believe, but mm-hmm. they're in common interest to shrink the bill. So we left one rule out, and that's rule number one. The Daily News is often just the first draft of history. And it's here that we can briefly talk about the other big recent political event, that being the U.S. Senate's decision to acquit Trump of the impeachment charge of inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th. Now, there have been four impeachment trials now in our history, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump twice. And this was the most bipartisan vote for conviction in this country's history. Seven Republican senators did vote to convict. But the final tally of 57 who voted to convict, of course, was 10 short of the two-thirds majority needed. Now, while the impeachment trial itself is over, the impact on our politics is not. Trump is facing a slew of lawsuits on charges of defamation, fraud, and from the New York Attorney General's office, into valuation of assets by the Trump Organization. In fact, the Supreme Court just ruled that the New York Attorney General can get access to his tax returns. Trump has also recently been sued by the NAACP for violation of the Reconstruction-era Klan Act, the 1871 Act. This is something we covered briefly in our second episode when we talked about the history of the black vote in America. Now, this is a perfect example of a history that's not even close to being settled. Trump is preparing to re-emerge in the political arena. In fact, he is scheduled to speak at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, this Sunday. And he's already been meeting political leaders down at his compound in Florida. So politically, the fallout from this era is going to affect the 2022 midterm elections, and very likely will also have some effect on the 2024 presidential election cycle. History is going to make its own determination on the impact of Trump and this entire era, and as we can see, this history is being written in real time. So just take a note of where things are, collect some data, and look for the pivot points where the road of history decides to chart a new course. Yep. And that's our show, guys. Remember, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on X, Y, or Z? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. And we're going to have more ways to engage with you as we continue to roll out our new format, which will include some of our very first interviews, which we're scheduling now and are coming out very soon. So there's a lot to look forward to for our next show. 
As always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.